Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 13, Paul writes, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there's nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you're no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Paul really is asking the question, how do we get along? It's a question that is a reoccurring question in our culture and our society. How do we get along? How do we experience unity in diversity? We often underestimate the value of unity. We look for reasons, instead of to stay together, we, we look for reasons to fall apart. What does Paul mean by unity? Christian unity is based on all of our connection to Christ. In other words, unity creates the mechanism for diversity because we're attached to Jesus. We're attached to his love. We're attached to his grace. We're attached to his righteousness. We're attached to his peace. Unity is the exact opposite or the antithesis of isolation, detachment, conflict. But we live in a world because we are given to conflict. Our predisposition is towards criticism and censorship. We tend to define things in terms of ourself. And you know that's true every time you open your mouth and you say the words, I agree with almost everything you're saying. I am the first person who is guilty of making this statement. We tend to evaluate and judge and measure truth and unity on the basis of ourself. I've told you the story about John MacArthur, how I had him on my radio program a few times, how I found myself saying to Dr. MacArthur, I don't agree with everything you say. And then suddenly I said, but I can't afford to ignore anything you say. And Dr. MacArthur graciously, wonderfully goes, I'm going to help you get your foot out of your mouth. I'm going to he refused to allow my arrogant and my selfish and my foolish statement to end our conversation. In graciousness, he just simply said, ah, a Berean. You know, John MacArthur outlined chapter 14 this way. Receive one another with understanding in verses 1 through 12. Build up one another without offending in verses 13 through 23. He didn't just simply outline the chapter that way. He lives that way. He practices what he preaches. In this chapter, Paul has told us three important things if we're to get along with one another. Remember in the opening verse of chapter 14, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. The first is genuine acceptance of one another. Receive each other. Don't reject each other. We're to receive. The second 
individual Christians can disagree over manners and customs and social habits and non-essentials and personal preferences. Remember that we're not to divide over disputable things. And remember how I define disputable things. A disputable thing is that which there is no evidence for sin. No proof of sin. No evidence of sin. Number three, the important point was we all submit to the lordship and the leadership of Jesus. We stand or fall before our beloved master. We stand before Jesus. We give an account to him in verses 10 through 12. So can Christians have differences of opinion? Yes. Can they have differences of opinion on non-essential matters? Yes. Can they have differences of opinion on non-essential matters? And still have a right relationship with God? The answer is yes. Can they have differences of opinion on non-essential matters and have a right relationship with God? And can we have a right relationship with each other? And Paul says yes. If you will allow liberty and love to inform your thinking and your decision making. How are we to avoid judgment? How are we to get along with each other? How are we to remain sensitive and supportive and even sacrificial towards one another? Paul gives the answers here. We must not be a source of stumbling to one another, he says in verses 13 through 15. We must present ourselves as citizens of God's holy kingdom. We are citizens of heaven. In verses 16 through 18. We must properly pursue those things. And embrace those attitudes. That bring about unity. And that are beneficial to the kingdom. And to Jesus. In verses 19, 20 and 21. And we must be sure that our actions are done. With a clear conscience before Jesus. In the power of the Holy Spirit. In verses 22. And 23, so look where he begins in verse 13. Purpose in your heart. Make the decision in your heart. I am not going to be a source of stumbling. Look what it says in verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another. And remember, we've already learned what therefore means. We look and we see what it's there for. And it's all that Paul has been talking about On these issues, these non-essential issues. Here's his advice. Stop judging each other on things that don't matter. Here's what he does say. If for whatever reason there's something inside of you. There's some driving force. Something inside of your heart that says, well, I just can't help it. I, I just feel the need to judge. Paul says, judge yourself. You can't hold it back, then evaluate yourself. Judge yourself. Are you a source of stumbling? Don't place spiritual landmines in the paths of brothers and sisters. Paul's advice don't be careless, be careful. This is Paul's call to a thoughtful, careful Christian living. In verse 13, when he says, But rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall. The expression stumbling block is very, very interesting. In the original language, it's pros, comma, pros, comma. It means something that has been carelessly left behind with the purpose of tripping or stumbling. In the ancient world, it came to mean something that you would deliberately or carelessly leave behind in order to impede progress. In war, people deliberately leave behind landmines. As a matter of fact, if you have an opportunity to visit with people 
who've served in Iraq or you've, they've served in Afghanistan, if you've ever taken a tour of an army hospital or a veteran's hospital and you see a person who's lost a limb, they've lost an arm, they've lost a leg, it's usually due to an IED, you know what that is, an improvised explosive device. An improvised explosive device is something that has been knowingly left behind to cause harm. To impede progress. Paul says, don't do that. Don't leave behind explosive devices that may be either carelessly or deliberately set. Our Kent Hughes writes, quote, our Christian lives must be salted with a refusal to do anything that will harm the spiritual life of a weaker brother, unquote. It, again, don't do things that grieve people, that destroy people. Now here, destruction doesn't mean in a salvific sense. In the sense that they'll go to heaven or, or hell based on what you do or don't do. Paul deals with similar problems in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. What he does is he says that knowledge must unite with love. Knowledge and unite in love, unite together in order to equip and prepare us. If something trips up your brother or sister, Paul's advice, don't do it. In verse 14, I know and I'm convinced by the Lord Jesus that there's nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. The New Living Translation puts it this way. I know and I'm perfectly sure on the authority of the Lord Jesus that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. But if someone believes that it's wrong, then for that person it is wrong. And remember, Jesus reminded the disciples in Mark 7, verses 14 through 19, that nothing that you eat can defile your soul. But that's the big principle. The big principle is you cannot contaminate your soul by what you put in your mouth. You can't contaminate your soul by what, how you dye your hair. Thank God, right, ladies? You can't contaminate your soul by what you draw on your body. Food might defile the body, but it can't contaminate the soul. Food contains no moral toxins capable of poisoning our spiritual system. And so remember who Paul is writing to. These are Roman people. There are Jews and there are Gentiles. There are people who have grown up in a cultural or a social circumstance. Paul is in effect saying, if behavior, if you do something that unsettles or distresses another person's conscience, that's unconscionable. In a sense, Paul is saying, if your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. I get upset when I see people eat spam. I think it's just wrong. You should not have to eat that stuff unless we're at war. Now, if spam is wrapped in seaweed and covered with wasabi and dipped copiously and soy sauce, I can swallow it. There's nothing unclean in and of itself. Remember, the context is food and feast, but the principle still applies. All of God's creation is acceptable to God. It's, it's what man does with God's creation that may or may not render it impure. In spite of my belief that nothing is unclean, there are still things that I consider to be unclean. Now remember, when you're reading the word unclean, think of another word. The other word is unavailable. There are certain things that I make myself unavailable to. Because for me, it's not good for me. I grew up in a world of profound abuse, drug and alcohol abuse. When I became a Christian and I accepted Jesus as my Lord and my Savior... 
There were choices that I had to make that I thought were going to be good for me. For me, it was a good idea not to drink wine. It wasn't a good idea to drink alcoholic beverages. In my world, it wasn't a good idea to smoke marijuana. Now, remember, when I got saved in the 1970s, marijuana smoking was illegal. Now it's legal. We live in a world where it is not against the law in the state of Colorado to smoke marijuana. But I have to admit to you that if you invited me after church to a barbecue or to a pool party and you said, dude, let's fire up a joint and smoke it right now, I have to admit that I would be a little bit disturbed. I would be a little bit disturbed because that's something that's unavailable to me. I believe it's wrong. Legal, yes, in Colorado. But lawful doesn't always mean helpful. I'm convinced that marijuana is harmful for me. That it's harmful, not only for what it does to my, my body, but what it does to my mind. I can't be sober-minded and marinated in THC at the same time. I can't be sober-minded or heavenly-minded and intoxicated. It's not a part of my world. But look what it says in verse 15. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you're no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ has died. Destroy seems like a hard word, and I think it's meant to be. It's the Greek word apolumi. It's elsewhere translated condemn. It's used in the context of going to hell. But again, here in verse 15, he's not talking about behaviors that make it impossible for a person to go to heaven or hell. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you're no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food. I want you to note carefully that expression, with your food. Some Bible teachers interpret this passage to mean the petty insistence on having your own way. Here the context is eating food. But here it means any kind of behavior that really results in you not caring about the consequences of what you have done or how it harms someone else. This is the kind of in-your-face flaunting of freedom or the freedom that says, I have the freedom in Christ to do whatever I want and I don't have to be concerned about your feelings. I don't have to be concerned about your upbringing. I don't have to be concerned about your cultural or social or political or religious sensibilities. This flaunting of freedom at the expense of brothers and sisters is condemned by Paul. Paul is opposed to the attitude. So what are we supposed to do? Paul says, act in love. Well, what does love do? Well, love is kind. Love doesn't insist on having its own way. You mean I have to let people walk all over me? Paul says, love doesn't think that way. That's not what love does. Love responds with, oh, somebody's going to have to make a sacrifice? I'll make the sacrifice. Oh, you mean somebody has to do without? I'll do without. Oh, you mean someone has to set their liberty or their privileges aside? I'll set my liberty and my privileges aside. Love is the first to make the sacrifice. And so the Christian life, the Christian life is like walking a tightrope. My, my wife loves the Hallmark Channel and she watches those crazy Waltons. And the circus came to town. There was a carnival. There was a little dwarf, and there was a bearded lady, and there was a tightrope walker, and one of the Walton children gets on the roof, but she's never, ever practiced balance. There's no net. There's no harness, and her 
mother's eyes got really big and her father's eyes got really big and her brothers and sisters eyes got really big because they realized that you may in your heart believe that you can walk that very difficult walk with no training with no undergirding it's not safe to walk a tightrope unless you have a balancing pole some people need a harness some people need a net But for the Christian, that balancing pole is liberty on one side. You pick up the pole, liberty is on one side. You might think license is on the other side, but you would be wrong. We're not balancing liberty with I'm free to do whatever I want. Paul says your balancing pole is liberty and love. Liberty and love is what gives you the ability to put one foot in front of the other and then walk the Christian walk. You take a step in liberty and in love. You might be thinking, where do I draw the line? Where does my liberty end and and my consideration for the feelings and, and sensitivities others begin? Where do I go? Where do I draw the line? And I don't have a good answer for you except for this. Draw the line where Jesus drew the line. Where did Jesus draw the line? Where did Jesus draw the line between love and liberty when it comes to you? Paul is in effect saying, if Jesus died for them, can't you deny yourself this one little thing? Can't you forego this one little privilege? Now that doesn't mean that we're called to some sort of uncritical, indiscriminate limitation of freedom. Even though at the beginning he says, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. He's not talking about sin. He's not talking about good and evil. He's not talking about right and wrong. Remember what he's talking about. Those things where there's no proof of sin. One of my favorite stories is told by Donald Gray Barnhouse. He was a wonderful Bible teacher in in, in Philadelphia, and he was deeply, deeply influential uh, to, to a n- number of other Bible teachers, and including Dr. Walter Martin. He was mentored by Donald Gray Barnhouse. He was speaking at a conference in Montrose, Pennsylvania in 1928. There were about 200 young people present at this conference. And two women came to Dr. Barnhouse, and they were shaking, and they were upset. They were horrified. That two young ladies weren't wearing stockings. The women wanted Dr. Barnhouse to rebuke the wayward teenagers. His reply was classic. Quote, looking them straight in the eye, I said, The Virgin Mary never wore stockings. They gasped. (gasps) She didn't? I answered, in Mary's time, stockings were unknown. So far as we know, they were first worn by prostitutes in Italy in the 15th century. (laughs) That's when the Renaissance began. Later, a lady of nobility began wearing stockings at a court ball, greatly to the scandal of good and decent people. But before long, everyone in the upper classes were wearing stockings, unquote. These ladies, he wrote, who were holdovers from the Victorian epoch, or epoch, or epoch. He said they didn't have anything else to say. Donald Gray Barnhouse says, I didn't rebuke the girls for not wearing stockings in the summer. Though nobody else really thought that much about it again. He said, nor do I believe that these young teenagers who didn't wear stockings led to the moral and spiritual disintegration of America. He said times were changing and the step away from Victorian legalism was all for the better, he wrote. We respect each other's freedom. Here's what Paul says. Respect each other's freedom. Voluntarily Restrict your own. Remain sensitive to others. Again, but that doesn't mean that we submit to prejudice or perversion. 
We don't persist in sub-biblical legalism. Remember what I've already said to you. Legalism is when my opinion becomes someone else's obligation. We exercise freedom. We encourage others not to violate their conscience. And, and then again, present your passport. I'm a citizen in the kingdom of God. Look what it says in verse 16. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. The New Living Translation reads, Liberty must not become license. Here in verse 16, when you look at that word, Therefore, do not let your good. What is your good? Here, Paul means your liberty. Here, when he's speaking of, therefore, do not let your liberties be spoken of as evil. Your liberty must never, no, never become the excuse for you to sin or to encourage others to sin. Paul lifts the conversation above the topic of food and above the topic of feasts. In verse 17 he says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You know, there are some people in our church who have dual citizenship. They have citizenship in Spain. They have citizenship in Mexico. They might have citizenship in Italy. They might have citizenship in another country. They enjoy dual citizenship. And whatever citizenship they have, there's certain things about that country and that culture that are unique to that country and culture. Whether it is dress, whether it is food, whether it is in customs. So what does citizenship in the kingdom of God include or incorporate the kingdom of God doesn't consist in what you eat or what you wear you might have an image that there's only one cafe in heaven it's the manna cafe and the only food that you have there is manna you see the truth is if you really thought that heaven or the eternal state would be about going to church on Sunday if you really thought that going to heaven would be about watching or not watching movies, watching or not watching conventions or concerts or conferences, if you thought going to heaven was one great big outdoor activity, if for you heaven is one long fishing trip or a white beach and um, a parasol and a Corona beer with a little lime stuck in the neck of the mouth and you're going, heaven, this is heaven. Then you've got it wrong. You've missed the point. The religious leaders in Jesus' day were convinced that the kingdom of God was all about the externals. Touch not, taste not, handle not. Paul writes rather citizenship in the kingdom of God is about righteousness, about peace about joy. He invites you to take your passport and your proof of citizenship. And on your passport and your proof of citizenship are stamped righteousness and peace and joy. What does Paul mean by that? What Paul means by that is he's not simply incorporating God talk into the difficult decision of how we're going to get along with other, each other, how we're going to resolve conflict, how we're going to solve problems. The primary element in God's kingdom is God's righteousness. And remember, that's the theme of the book. God's righteousness. We are not righteousness. We're not, we're not righteous in and of ourselves. We are not by nature righteousness. We must be made righteousness. Here's the point that he's making. Since we're sinners both by nature and by choice... We can't become righteous by doing good deeds or even making good choices or participating in good clothes or good appearance. We can't become righteous by a decision that I'm going to be better, that I'm going to be smarter, that I'm going to be more sensitive, that I'm going to be this or I'm going to be that. We cannot become righteous by a decision to be different 
apart from Christ, apart from grace, apart from the gospel. We become righteous through Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes, For he, that's the Father, made him, that's the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When we experience the righteousness of God in Christ, when something happens, when we're saved, when we're born again, when we pray the prayer and we say, Jesus I need to be saved. I I need my sin forgiven. I need to have a right relationship with you. The Bible says that, that God forgives your sin and the Holy Spirit comes inside of your heart. And when that happens, there's something else that happens. You have a thirst for God. You want to be changed from the inside out. David wrote about it in Psalm 42. He said, he said as the deer longs for the stream... So my soul thirsts for you. My soul pants for you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. David cries out, when can I come to you? When can I be with you? God's righteousness produces God's peace. Because you are accepted and made righteous by God in Christ. The war with God is over. Part of the point that Paul is making is this. He loves you. He accepts you. You're not at war. You have peace. You have peace with God and you have the peace of God. And because it's a settled peace and because it's a confident peace, he invites us to be at peace with each other. We are at war with ourselves. And everything that we are apart from Christ. We are at war with selfishness. We are at war with this world. We are at war with Satan. But the peace of God is the secret of experiencing peace with others. And kingdom peace means that you're not disturbed by the minor flaps and the petty irritations And the setbacks of immature and inconsistent Christians. (laughs) And then there's joy. Joy in the Holy Spirit. Again, think of the progression. Righteousness inside. Peace inside. Joy inside. In what sense? Joy is the outward sign of the inward presence of Jesus in the life of the believer. There was a Bible teacher who tells the story of taking his wife and children to London. And they passed by St. James Place. And they said, do you see that flag? Do you see the flag flying at St. James? And they said, yes. And their host said, this means that the queen mother is at home. But for the Christian... Joy is our flag. Do you remember when you were a kid? Did you ever sing that song? The castle of my heart. Joy is the castle in my heart. I know I'm not saying it right. Let me just put it a little bit differently. Joy is our flag. Joy is our flag. And joy means that Jesus is king and he's at home in the castle of our heart. Why? Guess what? Righteousness because we're accepted by God. Peace because we've been made at peace with God. And joy because we have joy in the knowledge that our sins have been forgiven and that we're going to heaven. The kingdom of God doesn't consist of the externals, but of the internals. In verse 18, for he who serves Christ in these things, in what things? Liberty and love. What things? Selflessness instead of selfishness. What things? In the things that make for righteousness, peace, and joy. Jesus accepts people who are righteous, made right in him. We have peace with him. We have joy because of him. 
We are approved by God. Look what it says in verse 18. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God or approved by God. What does that mean? It means that God sees into your heart. God sees what other people do not see or do not know about you. God sees into your heart, but human beings can't see into your heart. So what does he mean when he says, For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God, who sees on the inside, and approved by men who see on the outside. They see the way you actually act towards one another. The words that you speak to one another. The joy that you express to one another. The communication of edification that you extend towards one another. We're approved by God who sees our hearts. We're approved by men who see our actions. So are you weak? That means limited in your freedom. Are you strong? Liberated in your freedom. Paul writes, whether weak or strong... We're making a horrible mistake. We're making a terrible mistake if we focus on the externals. Because you see the weak, the weak, the weak, they shrivel and they shrink in their faith because the external rules, they they see this rule thing as a pathway to righteousness. By the way, is being a good person a pathway to righteousness? According to the Bible, it's a pathway to self righteousness according to the bible there's only one way to have a right relationship with god and that's in christ think about what paul is saying paul is inviting you to see yourself the way god sees you accept it and then he's inviting you to look at each other the way god sees you Accepted in the beloved. So do we dare flaunt our freedom? Paul says, don't do it. In New Hampshire, where my brother lives, the state motto is, live free or die. In the kingdom of heaven, the state motto is, live free and die. Die to yourself. Die to insisting that you have your freedom no matter what. Die to insisting that your brother doesn't matter, that your sister doesn't matter, that their feelings or their conscience doesn't matter. If you're willing to separate yourself from your brother, if you're willing to separate yourself from your sister who doesn't share your view on the non-essential matter in order to flaunt your liberty at the expense of your brother's conscience, you've submitted to a whole new tyranny. And the tyranny, of course, is the tyranny of self. It's the tyranny when you wake up and you look in the mirror and you say, I'm going to do what I want and no one can tell me what to do. In the Revolutionary War, the stakes were high. Rebellion against England meant certain death for the signers of the Declaration of Independence. But Thomas Paine said, if we do not hang together, we will hang separately. He understood what Christians often do not understand. That there's strength in unity. There's strength when we accept each other instead of reject each other. There's strength when we allow liberty and love to define how we act. And look at verses 19 through 21. Properly pursue those things which bring mutual benefits. Look at verse 19. He says, therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things which one may edify one another. That word, therefore let us pursue, is very strong in the original language. It means to follow hard. It can also mean to persecute. It was a term that was used to describe hunters as they identified their prey, as they looked at the direction in which their prey was headed. It was that specific, thoughtful, aggressive way of going in a particular direction in order to capture what it was that you're hunting. We're to follow hard after those things, but what we are looking for is unity and peace and mutual edification. What Paul is in effect saying is that we're going to have to work hard hard 
at this. That it's not going to be easy. We may put it in the negative. We're to refuse selfish and personal gain. We carefully look at and determine what are the needs of others. And then we devise a plan on how to help. Instead of saying, what are you going to give me? We look at each other and we say, okay, let's come up with a plan to help you. Let's come up with a plan so that you get what what you want. Paul is in effect saying, does my speech or my actions build my brother up or tear my sister down? If you can't say with all of your heart, well, I'm doing this to build them up. He's not talking about a sarcastic comment. He's asking you to really consider, is what I'm doing building them up or tearing them down? You know, when I read this passage, I thought to myself, because I'm a carnal, wicked, selfish person. Well, sometimes you have to tear somebody down in order to build them up. And I was immediately overcome with the thought, Are you the builder? Are you the property owner? Do you own the rights and the privileges to that person? In Galatians chapter 5 verse 13, Paul writes, For brethren, you've been called to liberty. Only don't use your liberty as an occasion for the flesh, but by love serve one another. In order to understand what Paul is saying, you must read verse 20. Do not destroy apolumi. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Does this mean a permanent destruction? No. What is the work of God? Maturity. Liberty. In the life of the believer. All things indeed are pure. But it is evil for the man who eats with offense. Verse 21. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. And so he says, don't stumble. Deny yourself. Remember, that's the voluntary setting aside of liberty, privileges. Why? Because they're God's children. Weak or strong, we grow in love. The weak believer needs to grow in knowledge and in truth. And sometimes I'm the weak believer. The strong believer must allow love to season sentiments. It's Paul's way of saying, let love mature you. Allow love to make you stronger. In World War II, they would have convoys. They would leave the Atlantic shore, the Mississippi Gulf, and they would cross the Atlantic. And the convoy could only travel as fast as the slowest ship. The reason was in the Atlantic, there were German U-boats. They were looking for the defenseless. They were looking for prey. The weakest and slowest ships were the most vulnerable. And so all the ships in the convoy had to travel slow enough to provide protection for the slowest ship. The strong brother wants to storm ahead, but love doesn't permit this. Love is willing to slow down. Love is willing to slow down in order to help the weak. The shepherd must pace the flock to ensure that the weakest one is taken care of. Paul's advice, be aggressive, be persistent, be deliberate in peace. And getting along with each other. He's not talking about being aggressive and being persistent in having your own way. Look for ways to build each other up. Avoid the things that tear each other down. Here's what Paul is saying. And it's easy. He's not saying that at all. He's saying that it is the way of love. And so finally, be positive that you're doing it with a clear conscience. Look what it says in verse 22. Do you have faith? He's not talking about saving faith. 
He's not talking about the kind of faith where in confidence you trust Jesus as your Savior. When he says, do you have faith? He's talking about the confidence that you can, with good conscience, exercise your liberty knowing that you're not involved in sin. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. The New Living Translation says, you may have the faith to believe that there's nothing wrong with what you're doing. Keep it to yourself and to God. Blessed are those who do not condemn themselves by doing something that they know is all right. You might read that and think, what in the world is Paul talking about? Maybe I can help you. Have you ever made a a decision and you thought it was the right decision? You thought you were acting in love. You thought you were acting responsibly. You thought that you were even making a right choice. But the choice that you made wound up hurting someone terribly. Is it possible that you could do the right thing and achieve the wrong results? Paul is speaking of those things, not that are wicked or sinful, but are neutral and doubtful. We don't have confidence to do evil things, wicked things, sinful things. God doesn't give us permission to marry the unbeliever, have sexual relations outside of marriage, murder, lie, cheat. Paul is, in effect, saying doubtful things, neutral things, those things that that you may or may not want to do, keep it to yourself. What about movies? That's between you and God. What about a glass of wine with dinner? That's between you and God. What about margaritas with Mexican food? That's between you and God. Paul is, in effect, saying, look, if you have the liberty to do that, more power to you. If you're able to exercise your liberty without harming others, praise God. He says, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he doesn't eat from faith, for whatever is not from faith is sin. Here's his advice to the weak. His advice to the weak is, your practice should never extend beyond your convictions. Well, I think I might have the liberty to do this. And all of a sudden your conscience says, this is not a good thing for you. You see, your conscience doesn't know what's right. It can only motivate you to do what's right. Let me help you understand that. Your stomach motivates you to eat, but it doesn't know what to eat. If you decide on gumbo, your stomach is going to try to digest it. If your stomach, if you decide on sushi... Your stomach is going to try to digest it. You see, there might be things in your mind that you say, I'm free to eat this. And your stomach and your intestines say, no, you're not. You have to make the choice. You have to inform the stomach of what you're going to put in there. And you have to inform the conscience. That's why you know people who can say, this is right for me. You see, the source of information may not be the Bible and everybody's lives. It might be the culture. It might be the media. It might be their religious upbringing. Paul's advice, don't violate your conscience. Look what it says in verse 23. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not of faith is from sin. You should never, ever do anything that your conscience doesn't allow. By the way, what might be the source of pressure trying to manipulate you into making a decision that you're not ready to make? My answer might surprise you. It could come from your church. It could come from your pastor. It could come from your husband or your wife or your brother or your sister or mom and dad and brother and sister. It could come from people that you love and who care about you and have your best interest in mind. But if the church says to you, violate your conscience, bad idea. If anyone in your life says, violate your conscience, don't do it. The Apostle Paul wisely details the four do's if you value corporate unity and personal integrity. Number one, never, never, never be a source of stumbling. Never be a rock of offense. 
On my radio program this week, I was reading Christian headlines, and there on the headline I read, Cross offends atheists at ground zero. That's exactly what I did. I laughed out loud. And I said, praise you, Jesus. The cross is still doing what it was always intended to do. 2,000 years ago, the cross offended people. 1,500 years ago, the cross offended people. 1,000 years ago, the cross offended people. 500 years ago, the cross offended people. Right now, the cross offends people. But let's try to limit our offense to the cross. Number two. Live like a citizen in a great kingdom. Focus not on the externals, but on the internals. Focus on righteousness. I'm accepted by God, and so are you. Focus on peace. We don't have to fight anymore. Focus on joy. Because the presence of God in your heart is the flag flown high. And number three, pursue with a purpose those things That benefit the believer. And number four. Live your life with a clear conscience. Live your life in fellowship with each other. Unity creates strength. George MacDonald said. There can be no unity. No delight of love. No harmony. No good in being. Where there is but one. Two at least are needed for oneness. Think about that simple statement. You already knew it. There is no such thing as unity. Unless at least two people are involved. You can't have unity all by yourself. And you can't have love all by yourself. And you can't have harmony All by yourself. Truth? Can you have fellowship with God and relationship with God all by yourself? Yes. But it will never be all that it was intended to be because you were meant to have friendship and fellowship with God and with each other. Here's Paul's statement. When you're connected to Christ... You're connected to each other. So look for a reason to stay instead of go. Look for a reason to stay together instead of go your own separate way. Chapter 14, gone. Chapter 15, when I come back, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, We understand that sometimes we can be difficult. (laughs) And sometimes we don't act like citizens in heaven. And sometimes we focus on the things that just don't matter. But Lord, we want to pursue a purpose. That unity is important. Way more important than most of us really, really think. And Lord, we want to live our lives in that delicate balance that includes love and that includes liberty. And Lord, we pray that you'd give us the strength that when the time comes and somebody has to be the loser, someone has to give up the privilege, someone has to walk away because the unity is way more important Lord, we pray that you'd give us the strength to do exactly that. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.